you're listening to Venture Vignettes, a podcast that features trailblazers in entrepreneurship, investment, and innovation. I'm your host, Rihanna Shah, recording from Stanford, California. If you like what you hear today, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Today, I'm sitting down with Mar Hershenson, one of the founding managing partners at Pair VC, a VC firm that supports new entrepreneurs with fresh ideas and funding. Mar was born in Barcelona, Spain, and immigrated to the U.S. more than 20 years ago. After studying electrical engineering at Stanford, Mar co-founded three tech and hardware startups, because one was not enough, <laughs> and eventually transitioned to the funding side of VC to found Pair with other immigrants. Thanks so much for being on the show, Mar. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start out with talking a little bit about your background. So you finished a PhD in electrical engineering in 1999. Could you tell me about the kind of work that you did then as an engineer and if you've continued to do more work in technology since then? Yeah, so I have an interesting story for my PhD. I was originally a circuit designer and Mm -hmm. I had an advisor in the circuit design department, but I was very lucky to find also a second advisor that was in a completely different area of electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. And it was convex optimization, large-scale optimization. So I was blessed with two amazing advisors, and I was able to do research both on the circuit side, which was more hardware, and on the optimization side, which was more software. Um, So I feel, like I said, super lucky to have been exposed to both things early in my studies. And I think as many of us that have PhDs, it's not so much what we know, like if we're an expert in hardware or an expert in software, it's actually the training of knowing that you can um, look at a new area or a new problem, read a bunch of papers, and then have enough know-how to actually deeply understand something. So I think that's the best thing that I was able to get at the end of the day out of my PhD. So it's helped me in my career in many ways, you know, not just in in technology, but also, you know, in my current job when you're doing funding and you get something, you know, some amazing founder comes and tells you something about an area you don't know anything about. How do you come up to speed and are able to make a decision? It's really Mm -hmm. hard if you have to uh, depend on a third party to actually make a kind of like an intelligence diligence decision yeah. um, and it's much easier and actually much more fun if you're able to uh, deep dive uh, you know in agriculture or biotech or something that is completely unrela- unrelated to circuit design and have a sense of why that might work or why that's important why would somebody care about it etc Yeah, that's so interesting. I find the idea of learning how to learn to be one of the most important things, right? especially in in the economy today, because I feel like things change so fast. Like if you think about the like telephone many, many decades ago, it took like 40, 50, 60 years to get to the first 250 million subscribers. Yes. Whereas with things like Facebook or other social media networks, it's just so fast. So it just feels like technology. I mean, I think uh, being a good, you know, kind of like a... um, a, le- a good learner is a key differentiator of our good CEOs. Let's assume mm-hmm. you're a good, C- you know, a first-time CEO. How do you actually become a great CEO? We had a group of students from Stanford on a field trip to Dropbox, and we asked Drew, you know, who was just uh, had never run a company, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden he's running this multi-billion-dollar company with thousands of employees. And one of the students asked him, like, "How did you become such a great CEO?" And um, you know, he said two things. One is that I read a lot, so. So I'm reading mm. all the time. I think that's a great sign of a great CEO that just cannot stop learning. They're anxious if they're not learning. Yeah. And the second thing is I surround myself by people that know more than me. Um, and again, that's 
part of learning, right? How do you, you know, why do we go to school? Because there's amazing professors and that are, you know, uh, going to educate us. So it's the same thing at a micro level when you're a CEO, when you're in a company and you have your first job. How do you become better? It's because you want to learn to be better, right? Um, so it's critical. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like one of the most important traits is to not have this fixed idea of intelligence, but to sort of perpetually be someone who is learning as sort of time goes on and, yes. and as new things happen. A little anxious. You know, you're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, my gosh, I can't believe I haven't learned anything today. Right? Yeah. That's, that's kind of the sort of mentality of the new successful person in the economy that we live in. That's very interesting. How would you say other CEOs or successful CEOs you've seen learn things. So what are some of the most effective places to go, for example, to learn about a new area? Would it be research papers in more of the academic side? Or would you say it's more books that are more yeah. friendly? Today, if you want to learn about something, there is just so much information that the challenge is almost how to prioritize it and filter it, right? And you can reach out to anybody you want. That's what I tell my founders and or even myself in my daily job. Let's assume I want to learn about ag tech, like I was mentioning earlier. Well, why can't I reach out to people that are on LinkedIn or that have a website or that are farmers? People actually will respond. They may not everybody will, but a percentage will. And those that do teach you, right? So that's one way you can learn, just reaching out to people. Obviously, uh, reading absolutely. But, you know, I listen to a lot of audio. Um, so and I think uh, a lot of my success, you know, successful female VCs, maybe it's a common trade. They listen to audio podcasts at 2x speed. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's because we are women and we just have less time or why. But that's another way people learn. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. That's that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the founding of Pair, because mm -hmm. I assume you took a lot of learnings from the three startups that you founded. You had yep. a lot of experience as a founder. What was it like starting a VC firm and what was it that spurred you to do that in the first place? Okay, so I um, started Pair VC with my partner, Peshman Nozad. Uh, he had been an angel for many, many years before. Uh, it was, you know, I've heard the word seed was a word in the vocabulary before TechCrunch or AngelList or YC or anything like that, right? So um, he was an investor in my companies and I got to know him. And somehow he approached me and he said, oh, I want to start a fund and I want to do it with you. And at first I thought he was crazy. I'm like, I've never, really, I've <laughs> never thought about it. But he was very persistent. And he said, listen, it's not just about uh, giving money to people. It's about helping people uh, do the best they can, right? And um, he convinced me to do it. I think it's uh, magically almost like my perfect ideal job. Um, I, When I graduated from Stanford in 99, I was a PhD student. I was starting my first company. At the time, you know, the internet was just starting, but it's not like you could go online and type term sheet and you would find like a million hits, right? right. There was really no information. I remember we were even trying to figure out how to do it. And uh, Stephen Boyd, which is my advisor, he's like, oh, we should just go buy a book in the bookstore. I'm like, oh, right, right, let's go. So we went <laughs> to the bookstore um, and we bought a book that was like how to start a small business. And, and at the time in the 90s, you know, people would start 
that um, that were PhD students or master students or undergrad would start a company, it was expected that you would bring a layer of management and a CEO. That was the expectation, right? Um, and that's how my first company was done. But uh, what I realized is that I think somebody, um, you know, a, I, a founder is always the best advocate for their company. And if you're willing to learn, you can actually become a great CEO, right? So part of my mission when we invest in a company is to really help support that founder, become the best they can be, and give them the confidence that they can actually do it. So it looks really scary if you've never sold anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you can't learn to sell something and be yeah. really good at it. So um, that's one of my goals and objectives at Pair is how how many people can we really change and turn into great leaders that, you know, them themselves can then create this huge companies that impact a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. And what would you say are some of the things that you've noticed about early stage founders today relative to when you were starting out and were? Yeah. Would have loved to Google term sheet, but couldn't. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, you know, uh, a lot of people are much more informed about startups because there's just a lot more information and here we're at Stanford there's information everywhere even if you don't want to hear it you like you're it's drowning there. yes <laughs> so uh, it's everywhere but um, you know there's a sense today that entrepreneurship is like a sport or like an extracurricular activity um, and I'll just do it you know it's great I should just do a company because I've been really successful and I got into Stanford and you know I'm just great um, and it's really 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 difficult and it doesn't I think if you've never been a founder and you hear me say it you've heard it before it's really hard people don't believe it because we only tell the good stories but um, you know it requires a level of uh, you know perseverance and tenacity and sacrifice that very very few people are willing to do very few people so my biggest surprise is doing the fund is kind of the low threshold of people of pain that people have and the more money that there is the higher we are in a bubble kind of that threshold is lower and lower so um that's you know the the key thing i try to get founders very quickly to suffer the most possible so to face the hardest thing as quickly as possible so that they know early on what it mm-hmm. is right i think if you're great at product you could be forever building a product yeah um but it's a hard thing is to get a customer. Yeah. You have to do what you're not comfortable doing to prove every point at the very beginning, kind of validate the hypothesis of your company. Because initially you don't have enough money, enough resources to, you know, hire 100 salespeople or a CFO or whatnot, right? So you have to learn how to do it. Yeah, definitely. I've uh, definitely heard before that entrepreneurship is the art of being uncomfortable yeah, that's constantly. It's a, <laughs> a good description. And, and you have to be committed to being okay, being that way. Yeah, definitely. I would love to talk a little bit about immigration with you. Immigration and entrepreneurship often go hand in hand, but mm-hmm. of course the current political climate has not exactly been the most favorable when it comes to immigration. And this has resulted in many other countries getting a lot of talent that otherwise would be coming to the United States. So could you talk a little bit about what you've experienced as an immigrant and yeah. what you've seen in entrepreneurs who might be immigrants as well? Well, both my partner and I are immigrants and, um, you know, we're so lucky to have come to this country and, you know, to be in in this area where we're welcome with open arms and um, differences are celebrated and you almost forget where people are from. It's, uh, you know, traditionally, obviously, you know, America is a country of immigrants. And I think that's partly why it's been really, really successful. 
right? You know, Spain, I come from Spain. And in the, you know, we were for many, you know, in the 1500s and the 1400s, we were the, the first power in the world. And um, in 1492, we uh, kicked out all the Jews out of Spain. And that became, um, you know, the beginning of the decline of Spain, right? And I think we let go of these people because, you know, they were, ex and they were like the doctors, the lawyers, the bankers of Spain. So, um, you know, and and it's amazing that history kind of repeats itself over and over again. You know, a few people that are scared of other successful people decide that the best thing is, you know, to get rid of some of those people. So that sounds um, eerily familiar to yeah. what's happening right now. <laughs> yes, and to be honest, I think I think we should all know Eleanor Roosevelt, which is one of my uh, heroes. Um, you know, she said that, you know, people don't realize that you're successful when everybody is successful, not when you are successful. So that's when you have the highest chance of being successful. Um, so anyways, it's really sad. I think that we are making it hard for people to come here because at the end, it's going to affect our children and everybody that we care of. We're going to live in a poorer country than if we didn't have these people, right? Uh, in particular, in entrepreneurship, um, you know, you can see that the most, um, you know, many of the incredible successful companies in this that uh, that we have funded here in the in a 20 mile radius have been started by uh, immigrants or by first generation and I think the first generation people they're like still in their house with their parents so they're like immigrants almost because every day they hear from their parents yeah. um, so it's a different situation um, so you know if we if if we believe in statistics and if we wrote a machine learning model of what an a successful company would look like one variable would be if you have an immigrant founder you have a higher you know a good chance of success so why get rid of this people or what make it harder for them, right? Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot to be said about idea exchange, drive, and a sort of hunger by bringing in a different set of eyes and a different lens to the things that we're talking Just about. Just like fear, I think, um, you know, and unfortunately our current political leaders, they want to make it, they want to increase fear rather than reduce fear. But, you know, it's don't let fear guide your life, basically. As we're thinking about building a machine learning model or, you know, some sort of a <laughs> predictive tool that can uh, figure out what makes successful entrepreneurs as well as successful companies. What are some traits that you've noticed make for really successful companies? I mean, you were uh, working with the folks at Dropbox and you were talking to them. And so obviously they recently IPO'd. And so that's been very exciting to see. But what would you say are some of the main things that make companies successful? Great. Um, well, you know, I think in venture, we all know you need a great team and a big market. And some people put one before the other, but I think they would say you need both. And then a lot, you know, some luck involved, right? Um, but if I look at my companies, and we're very early stage, right? So we may invest in people before they have a product, before they have a customer. Sometimes they have a product, sometimes they have one customer. But it's early. It's really early, right? So um, one of the things that, uh, maybe I'll answer the question the opposite way. One of the things that I've seen kills companies is actually having too much money, early on, right? And I think there is a phase in a company, which is this zero to one phase that every company goes through because every company starts at zero, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you get to one? And it's a critical phase of the company where you're almost setting the DNA of what the company will become forever, right? The culture of the company, how you run it, uh, what is the core problem you're solving, et cetera. 
Um, and it's it's it gets destroyed if you have too much money. Um, the zero to one phase, you may it may happen before you get your first dollar through the door, right? So you can think of, you know, successful Stanford companies um, that started here. One when I was a student, Google, uh, we were all using Google.Stanford.edu before they had any money. They had raised any money. It was mm-hmm. I think they were the they were bringing down the Stanford servers all the time because it was so <laughs> popular. And, and then you know, way after that, like a year or a year and a half later, they decided to raise their first round of financing, which was like a million dollars. Same, you know, I think with Snapchat, which, you know, here, years later, 20 years later. But again, this, um, you know, started by initially two undergrads, and they had been working on several ideas for a couple of years. A lot of, one of them failed. They went in a, you know, they tried to build this up. It also failed, and they kept going and going until they got something that kind of worked, and then they were able to raise their money, right? So um, some companies need some money to start with, and it's fine, but this phase of being kind of almost uncomfortable, scrappy, you can't go out and, um, you know, spend money on fancy chairs or, <laughs> you know, or hire like a market rate people because, you know, you just kind of have to figure out how it works is super critical. So when somebody is able to not have start at zero and very quickly raise, let's say $2 million, it you avoid going to the zero to one phase. And I believe it does hurt the company very much because you're not faced by solving with solving the real problems that somebody has to figure out early on. Yeah, definitely. And do you feel like it's the fact that there's a lot of money in the venture ecosystem right now that folks might be getting money if they're not venture ready yet, yeah. or if they're not really at that point where they should be raising money, do you feel like it's the Absolutely. ecosystem that's there allowing is, for it? There is a lot of money, and this is a cycle. You know, we're kind of almost. I'm on my third cycle of my career, so um, it will change. You know, mm-hmm. I think when the dot com happened, everybody was getting funded. You would just say, "I'm a dot com, whatever dot com," and you get funded. <laughs> yeah. It didn't matter. It mm-hmm. really did not matter. Um, and in 2001 or two, you know, nobody was getting funded. So who yeah. would become a founder? Only the crazy people. And only you had to be in that, like, you know, kind of crazy stage where there was not enough, you know, it was hard to start something. And that, you know, that makes great companies start. You know, we talked about Dropbox and, you know, Uber or this guy started in 07, 08 when it was just really kind of tough right after the financial meltdown, et cetera. So stronger companies happen in valleys, just in general. That's very interesting. That's a uh... So we're starting to come close to time. So I'm going to ask you a couple of uh, more personal questions because uh, awesome. they're always fun. So I read somewhere that you were very into quilting. Mm-hmm. And I recently uh, saw a presentation by a startup that is <laughs> teaching girls how to code through knitting. Oh, interesting. Because it's patterns. And um, it's very similar in some ways the way you think about it. And so I'm wondering, uh, what is it that got you interested in quilting? And do you feel like that has helped you in your yeah. engineering and investment journey? It's um, a great question. Uh, well, I first saw, you know, the reason I got into quilting, I was a grad student here at Stanford, and my lab was in the Center for Integrated Systems, and they have always art on the walls, and they would change it every few months. And once they had this um, quilting exhibition, I had never seen a quilt in my life. I just come from Spain, and I saw it, and I was like, oh my God, I love it. It's like, you know, math meets art, you know, it's so <laughs> like uh, geometrical and precise. 
size, et cetera. And, you know, my education was very STEMI. I was always like a math type of person. And somehow I was put in that bucket. I was not an artist. So one of the best things I I, you know, and this is one of the great things of America. You can actually, you know, you can learn anything you want. And I was, um, you know, one of the people in my lab was Teresa Mann. She's a professor and she's also into sewing. So she's like, oh, you could learn. So um, I took a class in Mountain View. The store is gone because now Castro is very preppy. But um, <laughs> <laughs> But that's where I learned how to quilt. And it's been great because you can design, kind of take your mind off and, um, you know, I make great presents for people when, you know, they have kind of a life-changing event. So, um, yeah, it's highly recommended as an outlet of doing something else. That's awesome. I love it. That is so perfectly the combination of (laughs) being extremely nerdy (laughs) while wanting to create something beautiful. So I I love that. Yes, I dream in my retirement of having like this giant quilting room with like all this equipment (laughs) and uh, you can go crazy and buy like crazy, really expensive stuff. I bet. I bet. Yeah, I've I've never tried my hand at quilting. As a kid, we would... um, as a kid at my school, they would want us to to knit or yeah. create a scarf, and I never had the patience for yeah. it. And so I I don't know if I'm ever gonna discover my uh, <laughs> own artist streak through quilting. I think you'd be better for coding, to be honest. But anyways, that's a good idea. Yeah, it takes a certain personality type. Yes. That's very interesting. And uh, to end off, I would love to ask you, since we started with a conversation about learning, do you have recommendations of books that? Yeah, you would think that first-time founders should read, or that immigrants who are interested in becoming entrepreneurs should read. Yeah, um, well, I have a book that I have been recommending for 15 years, so you know, um, it may be you know, you know, a little old, but I think it changed my life. So I recommend it because I'm an engineer at heart, and sometimes you know. Us engineers were told to read business books, and we're like, oh, I don't know, they're too fluffy. But uh, um, this book is the business book that was almost written by four engineers and it has almost like worksheets and rules and etc and it really helped me understand that it's not random that hump companies work out yeah there's actually a process behind it and you know you can measure yourself and there's data and so on it's called four steps to the epiphany um you know, it's an old book, but again, if you're an engineer and you're trying to figure out how to move from like, the, they don't talk about a zero to one f- uh, phase in those words um, because it's pre-Peter Thiel, but there is a, a description of that phase and how do you move on then to, you know, scale phase, etc. So I recommend that book. That's an excellent recommendation. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show awesome. today, Mar. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rihanna. That was great. To all of our listeners, thanks again for listening to Venture Vignettes, a podcast dedicated to interviews with tech leaders at the forefront of innovation. For questions, comments, or requests, you can always reach me at rihanna at kzsu.stanford.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and definitely leave us a review on iTunes. I'm Rihanna Shah, signing off until next time. <laughs>